Turn in your Bibles, if you will, to Luke chapter 10, as we resume our uh, study of this Gospel of Luke. Luke 10, we'll look at verses 1 to 11 this morning. <coughs> There's a lot of activity in Washington, D.C. these days, as President-elect Obama uh, selects people for key positions, everyone is watching and carefully weighing the implications of every appointment. What's that going to mean for us? For everyone knows that the direction the nation takes will depend on who's making the decisions and how they view the role of government in the lives of the citizens. But it's not just in Washington that such questions arise. It's also true in the church. The direction the church takes depends on who the leaders are. And the kind of ministry pursued in a church depends on the church's view of the role of those leaders and the role of the congregation. What kind of, what kind of lives are we called to live? So in our text this morning, I think the Lord Jesus helps us to understand his point of view on some of these things. Not exhaustively, not everything the Bible has to say about it, but certainly an important section for us to consider. Let me read it. Luke 10, verses 1 to 11. After this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them out two by two ahead of him to every town and place where he was about to go. He told them, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. Go. I am sending you out like lambs among wolves. Do not take a purse or bag or sandals. Do not greet anyone on the road. When you enter a house, first say, Peace to this house. If a man of peace is there, your peace will rest on him. If not, it will return to you. Stay in that house, eating and drinking whatever they give you, for the worker deserves his wages. Do not move around from house to house. When you enter a town and are welcomed, eat what is set before you. Heal the sick who are there, and tell them the kingdom of God is near you. But when you enter a town and, they are, and, and are not welcomed, go into its streets and say, Even the dust of your town that sticks to our feet, we wipe off against you. Yet be sure of this, the kingdom of God is near. And we'll end with verse 11. As I was studying for this, uh, studying this passage, I read one commentary that said, there are 10 truths that we ought to learn from this. So I thought, there's a ready-made sermon illustration. And then I thought, 10-point sermon, I don't think it would fly. So uh, I've had to work on it and boil it down to my uh, characteristic two truths. Although I did sneak in four sub-points on the second one. So um, two things this morning I want you to learn. The first is this. Jesus is multiplying his ministry. Jesus is multiplying his ministry. You know, sometime in, in elementary school, probably uh, fourth or fifth grade, I don't remember exactly when, just after we've learned how to add numbers and subtract numbers, we learn how to multiply. And what a difference. It's truly amazing, this multiplication thing. Just to take a simple example that every child would know, if you take the number one and you add two to it, you get three. Do that 50 times, and what do you get? 101. 
But do the same thing, take the number one and multiply it by two. Well, you only get two. But do that 50 times. And you don't get 101. You get a 13 digit number. One quadrillion, 235 trillion, 899 billion, 906 million, 842,624. Taking one and multiplying it by two, 50 times. The lesson is simple. If you want to do something big, you've got to multiply, not add. Jesus is multiplying his ministry. That's what we learn from the fact that Jesus sent out 72 of his disciples to serve him. Now I know that's not obvious to you right now, but I want to make it obvious. So let me talk about two things about this sending of the 72. First of all, let's think about that in terms of the, of the whole context of the New Testament. Let's, let's go back a little bit and kind of bicycle forward through the uh, New Testament and think about this. Back in chapter 4 of Luke, Jesus began his earthly ministry. His ministry consisted of teaching with authority and healing the sick and proclaiming the good news of the kingdom. Jesus was one person doing that ministry, doing what he did. But then when we got to Luke chapter 9, you may recall that Jesus sent the 12 out on a missions trip, the 12 apostles. And their ministry was what? The same thing preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God and healing the sick. You may remember we talked about that and we learned some things that are distinctive about the apostles and about what it meant to be an apostolic church. But just to keep track, now it's not just Jesus. Now it's Jesus plus 12 more, 13 people doing what only one person was doing back in chapter 4. And then we come to chapter 10 where Jesus sends 72 people out on a mission trip. And once again, their ministry is the same. Heal the sick and proclaim the kingdom of God is near. Let's see, that makes 72 plus the 12 plus Jesus. That makes 85 people now doing what only Jesus was doing in chapter 4. But he didn't just send the 72 out to do the work of the ministry. What was their first command? Pray that the Lord of the harvest would send laborers out into the harvest. Clearly, Jesus has more than 72 in mind. So let's suppose that in answer to their prayer, Jesus gave them 72 more. Answered each person's prayer. Let's see, that would double their number, plus the 12, plus Jesus. That would be 157 of them now doing what only Jesus was doing in chapter 4. You see, Jesus is multiplying his ministry. But God's not finished yet. If we turn to the second volume of Luke, which we call the book of Acts, if we turn there and, and, and we learn that on the day of Pentecost, God gave his spirit to 120 people who then spoke his word with supernatural power. Now that 120 includes the 12 or the 11, 12 minus Judas. But still that 120 plus the 11 plus the 72 plus the ones that God gave him in answer to the prayer plus Jesus would bring us up to maybe 266 people now doing what only Jesus was doing in Luke chapter 4. And then after Pentecost, what happened? Suddenly there's 3,000 people 
And a chapter or two later, there are 5,000 people devoted to the apostles' teaching. And then the persecution came in chapter 8, and we read that they all got scattered and went to the ends of the earth, preaching the word wherever they went. And we can no longer even calculate how many thousands of disciples are sharing in Jesus' ministry. So this is getting out of hand. Not just one or twelve or seventy-two. Now thousands. How far does God intend to expand this? Well, Ephesians 4 tells us quite clearly. Christ gave his church apostles and prophets and evangelists and pastor teachers for what? For the equipping of all God's people for the work of ministry. For building up of the body of Christ by means of the gifts he has given to each one. Clearly, Jesus understands how to reach the whole world with the message of the kingdom. He's not just adding a disciple at a time here and there. Each one he adds, he calls to ministry, in, to minister in his name. Jesus is multiplying his ministry. So second thing about these 72 and about the multiplication of ministry. What's significant about 72? Why 72? Why didn't Jesus send 68 people? Or 100? That would be a nice round number. Or at least 75. What's 72 mean? Maybe there's a symbolic meaning here. Maybe there's something about that number. Well, first you may notice that there's a textual question about what the number really is. I'm sure in almost every one of your Bibles, there's a footnote there telling you that some manuscripts say 70 instead of 72. In other words, when the, when the Bible was being copied by hand, some copyists changed the number or wrote down the wrong number. So which is it? Is it 70 or is it 72? The manuscript evidence is just about equal. We don't know for sure. But the greater question is, why that number anyway? Is there any symbolic significance to the number 70 or the number 72? Well, actually, there are two things, two incidences that might um, provide us a clue. So let me just tell you these two. They're kind of interesting. The first is uh, remember the situation with Moses and the elders of Israel back in Numbers chapter 11. As we read this morning, Moses had given, uh, the Lord had given Moses some elders to help him. And when we read uh, later on in the Pentateuch, we, we uh, uh, read that specifically there were 70 elders who God called to help lead, help Moses lead the people of Israel. But in New Numbers chapter 11, on that particular occasion, God did an interesting thing. He took the spirit, his spirit, which Moses had. And he gave his Holy Spirit to all 70 of those elders, and they all prophesied. And then remember, as you, if you recall that story, that there were two guys who weren't at that meeting. They were back in the camp, but right where they were, God gave them his spirit, and they prophesied too, which makes 72, actually, instead of 70. Well, young Joshua saw these things happening. He says, this is getting out of control. And so he said to Moses, Moses, my Lord, stop them. Seventy-two people doing what only Moses was supposed to do. 
And do you remember Moses' reply? It's a great reply. He says, I wish that all the Lord's people were prophets and that the Lord would put his spirit on all of them. Could it be that by sending out the 70 or 72, whichever, Jesus is suggesting that in multiplying his ministry, Moses' desire that all of God's people would be filled with the Spirit is about to take place? Interesting thought. Then there's a second possibility, though. If you go back even further than Numbers, if you go back to Genesis chapter 10, we ha- we're given a, a record of a list of all the nations which filled the earth after the flood. The nations which sprang up from Noah's three sons. And they're listed by name, all these nations. And in the Hebrew Bible, guess how many nations are listed? Seventy nations. To account for the whole human race. But interestingly, in the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible, which sometimes reads a little different, differently, in, in the Septuagint it's called, there are 72 nations listed. That's interesting. 70 or 72 nations representing the whole human race. So could it be that in selecting 72 disciples or 70 disciples to send out to multiply his ministry, Jesus is signaling his intention to spread his kingdom to all the nations on the face of the earth. Which, by the way, is exactly what happened and what continues to happen to this very day. Now, we don't know which of these incidents is, uh, was in Jesus' mind and, and was a determining factor in what he did. Uh, but you see, really, it doesn't matter which it was. The impact is exactly the same. Both of these possible solutions explain why there would be a variant reading, why someone might have corrected the number from 70 to 72 or vice versa, depending on their understanding of what was behind this. And both of these incidences point us to the same truth. Jesus intends to multiply his ministry beyond anyone's wildest expectation until his kingdom fills the whole world. Last week we installed some elders in our church. What a great day. We rejoice in the men that God has given us to lead our church. Sometimes the church's attitude has changed over the years, though. Churches begin to think that the men they have installed as elders are the ones who are now responsible to do the work of ministry. In fact, in some parts of the church, no one but those who are, who are ordained as elders or deacons would be thought qualified to do any kind of ministry. Well, this text reminds us that's not Jesus' point of view. Indeed, that would be like thinking that when you select a new football coach, 
that means the whole team is now going to take off their uniforms and, and, and put their helmets under their arms and go sit in the bleachers and watch while the coach and the assistant coaches and the trainers all play football. No. Coaches, we don't get coaches to go and play on the field. We get coaches to help the players work harder and play better, not to do it for them. Similarly, we install pastors and elders as coaches and trainers for team church, which consists of every single believer out on the field playing his particular position for all it's worth, giving 110% in spite of the pain and the injuries and the frustration and the, and the exhaustion. But that's how a football team works, and that's how the church is supposed to work too. So what position do you play? What, what is your responsibility? And are you giving yourself to that task? Can the church, indeed can the Lord, depend on you to play your position well and not drop the ball when it's in your court? Or are you just sitting on, in the bleachers like a spectator when your team is down on the field sweating it out. Jesus is multiplying his ministry and it includes every one of us. That's the first truth we should learn here. Then there's a second great truth. God sends us out to live like Jesus. God sends us out to live like Jesus. Actually, our second point says the same thing as the first point, except with a little different emphasis. I, I toyed with just making the second point the same words as the first point. The first point says Jesus is multiplying his ministry. The second point says Jesus is multiplying his own ministry. God has sent us to live like Jesus. So what does that look like? What does it look like? What's he called us to? Well, I think that that's answered by all these details that we have here in the calling of the 72. So let me just unpack those a little bit. And I've got to hang it on something. So I'm, I'm hanging this on four different things here. Four things of what it means to live like Jesus. The first one. To be sent out to live like Jesus means to live as lambs among wolves. You see it there in verse 3? I send you as lambs among wolves. Sure, this comes easy to us, doesn't it? Not a chance. We have such a self-protective attitude. Why, what if somebody's going to take advantage of me? What if I get hurt? Maybe it's better to just stay away from anything controversial, stay away from anything unknown. And so we build protective walls around us, socially, psychologically, even physical walls sometimes. But that's not what Jesus did. Jesus waded into the most volatile situations, simply speaking the truth doing what God said. 
He loved even the most controversial outcasts and was criticized severely for it. Jesus lived just like he calls us to live. Not in a self-protective cocoon, but as a lamb among wolves. So we read of him, he was led like a sheep to the slaughter, as a lamb before the shear is silent, so he did not open his mouth. And we read of him, when they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. And so the Spirit says to us, if you suffer good, suffer for doing good and endure it, this is commendable before God. To this you were called. Because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. God sends us out to live like Jesus, and that means we'll live as lambs among wolves, trusting him who judges justly to take care of us. Second thing it means, to be sent out to live like Jesus means... To live unencumbered by the world. To live unencumbered by the world. We read this account of chapter 10, and what do we make, what should we make of Jesus' instruction where he says, don't take a purse or a bag or sandals, don't greet anyone you meet on the road, stay in one house, eat whatever's set before you, don't move around from place to place. What do we make of all these? And if you think you have it all figured out, if you go back to chapter 9 where he sends the 12 out, he has a list of similar things, except it's not the same list. There's only one thing that's the same on both lists. And if you go forward to the end of Luke, there's another list of how he sends his people out, and it's completely different, even contradictory to what he said in chapter 9 and chapter 10. So perhaps the point is not what exactly should be on the prohibited list of activities. That's not the point. Perhaps the point is just a call to go serve the Lord simply. Simply. Not so concerned about material things. Not twiddling away our time. But living like people on a mission. Not so committed to our own comfort. But satisfied to have our needs met. In short, unencumbered by the things of the world. Isn't this how Jesus describes himself? We've had several weeks between chapter 9 and chapter 10, but if you go up just about two or three verses, Jesus says, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests. The Son of Man has no place to lay his head. Now Jesus isn't saying it's wrong to have a house where you go sleep at night. He simply says, my mission is more important than where I'm sleeping, more important than how comfortable I am. And so here he simply calls his disciples to do what he did. And that's the same attitude the Apostle Paul commends to young Timothy with a little different words. He says, Timothy, no soldier on active service entangles himself in the affairs of everyday life. Sounds a lot like being unencumbered by the world, doesn't it? 
It's the same thing we read in Hebrews 12. Let us throw off everything that hinders and run. There it's in terms of an athlete. Run with perseverance, the race marked out before. You see, God sends us out to live like Jesus lived. And that means unencumbered, living simply, not shackled by all the stuff of the world. Third thing it means. God sends us out to live like Jesus. That means to say what Jesus said. This is one of the most expensive one of the most astounding expressions of being like Jesus, in my opinion. For considering all the wickedness of the world, if you ever happen to read a newspaper or look at the television news, considering all the wickedness of the world, what would you expect God to send us out to say? Frankly, I would expect some words of severe judgment and condemnation. I would expect God would send us out with the scathing rebukes that were issued by some of the prophets, Jeremiah, Isaiah, and others. But here Jesus sends his disciples out to pronounce peace on houses, on families. He sends them out to the sick and broken with words of hope and healing. He sends them out announcing the good news that the kingdom of God is near. Not what we would expect to be called to announce given the holiness of God and the wickedness of the world. But you see, that's exactly the kind of thing that Jesus announced all the time. Think of all the things Jesus said. He said, I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners. He said, the Son of Man came to seek and to save those who are lost. He said, come to me, you who are weary and heavy laden, I'll give you rest. He said, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. He said, neither do, neither do I condemn you. Go, to, go stop sinning. He said, peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. He said, blessed are you poor. Blessed are you who are poor. Yours is the kingdom of God. He said, God didn't send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. And now... He's made us his mouthpiece. He's given us the privilege of going to proclaim that Jesus has brought us peace. Peace with God and therefore with one another. He has commissioned us to go and call people. Come and be reconciled to your God. He's entrusted to us the treasure of the gospel. That Jesus saves helpless, undeserving sinners who will trust him. That, that because he died on the cross, our sins are paid for. That because he rose from the dead, we have eternal life in him. We're called to say what Jesus said. So I must ask you this morning. Do those words ever come out of your mouth? Do you ever tell anyone those things? Does your Christian experience include telling People, the things that Jesus said, the things he has commissioned us to retell? Or would you watch your friend self-destruct before you would ever get up your courage to tell him that God will forgive and restore and heal your soul?
as the hymn writer Robert Robinson wrote so poignantly, brightness of the Father's glory shall your praise unuttered fly. Fly my tongue, fly my tongue, such guilty silence. Sing the Lord who came to die from the highest throne and glory to the cross of deepest woe, all to ransom guilty captives. Flow my praise forever flow. God sent us out to live like Jesus, and that means we are privileged to tell the things that Jesus told, to say the things that Jesus said. Well, one more thing. To be sent out to live like Jesus means, means to be faithful whether we're successful or not. Be faithful whether successful or not. You know, somewhere Christians today got the idea that if we do and say all the right things, we'll be successful. And in a sense, that's kind of true of life in this world. You do pretty much get what you pay for most of the time. It's generally true that those who work hardest actually succeed better than those who are lazy. That's true. It's true that there's no free lunch. That's true. So we seem to assume that the same thing is true about all of the Christian life. If I read my Bible and pray and go to church regularly, God will protect me from all trouble. And if I keep my nose clean and tell the truth and work hard, God will make me successful. And if I love my wife and children and provide for them, I'll have a nice family where everyone lives happily ever after. But folks, it's not that easy. It's not that easy. In fact, it was that way for Jesus, if you think about it. Jesus lived a sinful, sinless life. He loved perfectly. He was absolutely faithful to his Father. But they called him a sinner, and a glutton, and a drunkard. They lied about him, tried to undercut his ministry. They plotted how to kill him and carried out their plot. They coerced false witnesses to come and testify in court against him to get him condemned. And they finally successfully got him crucified. He who did nothing wrong. Absolutely faithful. And in and all, he remained faithful. He said, I only do what the Father tells me to do. He loved, but never hated and in his most agonizing hour of trial, he still prayed, Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. Jesus was faithful, whether it was going to make him successful or not. So in our text, he calls his disciples to do the same thing. He warns that some would not receive their greeting of peace. When they came and pronounced peace on a house, some people wouldn't accept that. He told them plainly, sometimes you will not be welcomed. Sometimes a whole town will not welcome you. So what were they to do when they seemed to fail? Were they to call down fire from heaven to destroy that town? That's what they wanted to do earlier, you know, in the little Samaritan village. No, he says, simply shake the dust off your feet and move on and tell some other people. For one way or the other, this proclamation is still true. So keep making it. The kingdom of God is near. 
Folks, faithfulness, which is not driven by our success, is very, very difficult. But this is our calling, to be faithful like the Lord was faithful, no matter what the outcome. The book of Hebrews, in fact, chides us when we're tempted to give in in the face of trouble. In in Hebrews we read, in your struggle against sin, you've not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood, have you? That's a little chiding. This is the Apostle Paul's challenge to us, to the Corinthian church. Men ought to regard us as servants of Christ and as those entrusted with the secret things of God. Now it is required that those who have been given a trust must prove what? Not successful. Faithful. Faithful. That's all. Faithful. To be sent out to live like Jesus means to be faithful when it brings you success and when they hang you on a cross. We American Christians live in a day of seemingly limitless opportunity. Whatever we can imagine, it seems, can be done. We have education and freedom and wealth that the rest of the world has only dreamed of. We have opportunity abounding, especially you who are young. You can go anywhere and do anything you please, and you do. Your whole generation does. But the question is this, what's worth doing? What's worthy of the life God gave you? What will endure? That's what our text is informing us about this morning. Jesus is busy multiplying his ministry. He's calling men and women to be laborers in his harvest. Specifically, God is sending us out to live like Jesus. That's not some sentimental, romanticized thought. This is the hardcore reality of serving Christ. It means putting aside our self-protective obsession and going out like lambs in the midst of a world full of wolves. It means letting go of many of the good things of life in order to live unencumbered by the world and pursue being like Christ, serving him. It means facing the terror of rejection that silences us and the anger that makes us want to lash out at the world in order to speak the gospel of peace. Grace to sinners that Jesus spoke. And it means to die to all our dreams of success. They don't really matter. They're so, so temporary. All that matters is that we be found faithful. No matter what the outcome, faithful. This morning, Jesus calls us. He says, you, follow me. As the Father sent me, so I'm sending you. Amen. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, 
we've sat in the bleachers a lot of years and applauded the missionaries and, and, and those who've gone with your word and those who've given their lives and done without and given them some money but Lord help us to understand that your will is that we get out of the bleachers and down on the field and start serving you in whatever position you put us in wherever whatever you put before us to live like you live speak what you spoke and be faithful like you were faithful and live unencumbered by the world fighting against our fears fighting against public opinion determined to be faithful grant to us Lord a heart to do that for every one of us it's much easier to sit back and watch others serve you Lord give us a heart to do it like you call us to in Jesus name we pray Amen